Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. I'm Mike Pratt, and here we are at part two of our IAEM series. This is the Irish Association for Emergency Medicine, and this conversation was recorded at that conference in October of 2018. Thanks again to Andy Neal for sharing this audio with me. If you haven't heard part one, go back and check it out, although you don't need to in order to appreciate this conversation. Today, you're going to hear about the CASA exam, ultrasound in cardiac arrest, and you're also going to hear about a lot of other aspects of how you should use or shouldn't use ultrasound in cardiac arrest. Again, I hope you enjoy it. Um, the CASA study is our next one to talk about. This was done, I think it was um, published last year. And a follow-up uh, no, paper this year. this year. Was it this yeah, year? Yeah, so, so the paper last year published were the two papers that showed that the uh, POCUS during the CPR uh, pause, um, POCUS increased the length of the CPR pause. And then the CASA paper came out January 18, the 2018. Outcome, yeah. Yeah, that um, basically was a secondary analysis of their previous um, where they added in some training to see if it could decrease the time for um, the CPR pause. And, and some of the background, just to explain a little bit of the background, Rachel, you've kind of been one of the things you've been interested for in a long for a long time is um focus uh, used in cardiac arrest and i think i've kind of picked up a little bit of your interest in that and kind of found my own way a little bit in that and when i spotted the casa study it just seemed to make a lot of sense because it protocolizes what we think we do or what we discuss on social media that we might do and we come together to kind of make a standardized protocol to describe how we might use it so we talked about harms of ultrasound potentially in the cardiac arrest. Our concern is time not doing CPR while we're fiddling with the ultrasound machine. So this is an idea, is a way of us reducing time off CPR to structure and protocolize our ultrasound during cardiac arrest to minimize those interruptions. And I just want to add that um, those papers showed that even without ultrasound, we are very poor at um, adhering to the less than 10 second pause anyway. But it's just um, that when you added POCUS, more time, there was more time delay um, just to make it clear. So CASA stands for Cardiac Arrest Sonographic Assessment and the study group was Kevin Gardner and Arun Nagdev in Highland Hospital. They recognised the fact that we do tend to have a delay when we add in a POCUS exam and cardiac arrest, however my, my amount of times we added in during that cardiac arrest cycle and standardise a protocol to use it. And these are PEA arrest patients because they're, they're potentially reversible causes, so they're not the shockable causes and tend not to be the asystolic causes as well. Um, it's a three-step protocol, um, and I like the way that they describe it. It's actually really, really useful to kind of offload cognitively during a car cardiac arrest. So in the first POCA study, it's done at the pulse check, and it looks for um, pericardial effusion, which may or may not cause tamponade. Then you have your cycle of your ACLS CPR cycle. So you're only looking for one thing in that initial one. One single question to answer. Is there pericardial fluid there? Recommence back on the chest. Single question and back on to your standard ACLS. At the next rhythm check or pulse check, we probably shouldn't call it rhythm check at this stage, um, you're going to look for right heart strain that may or may not indicate a pulmonary embolism. And then back on for your two cycles of CPR and then your cardiac activity in your third and final POCA study during the body of the, during the cycle of cardiac arrest. Rachel, why were these kind of things done in that order? Um, because in um, cardiac arrest, the ones that have the greatest survival 
are the ones who've been found to have tamponade than the pericardiocentist. So um, that's why that's the first thing you look at. Um, the next thing is then, of course, the, the, a huge PE is something that you can actually intervene on fairly um, easily. So that's your next um, go-to. So can I hold you up on that one then and talk? Does anybody want to give any, before I give my very strong opinions on right heart dilation and cardiac arrest, does anybody else have any opinions on right heart dilation and cardiac arrest? And so it has been shown that the longer an arrest goes on, whether you're receiving appropriate resuscitation or not, your RV will start dilating. So how I use this information is if um, someone was down and they had immediate bystander CPR that was effective, um, and hopefully just by doing that, um, uh, they're more on a ROSC pathway than a non-ROSC pathway, then I would be more keen to give TPA if I saw RV dilation. But if someone's been down for like, I don't know, 45 minutes and or maybe they haven't been receiving effective um, CPR and I see an RV size that's huge, then I would be more likely to say, hey, this is an effect of um, ongoing ACLS. Putting it in context. I think that's the key thing. I think a lot of us have kind of grown up with the idea that right heart dilation, whatever it means, means possible PE, whereas you've you're wonderfully explained the context there. While I don't necessarily agree with all the stop points in the protocol, I agree with the concept of having a protocol. I think a lot of reason why we're seeing delays um, in CPR is people, especially non-ultrasound people, get very overwhelmed with the cardiac exam at baseline, let alone in a cardiac arrest situation, all the things they need to cognitively process. And so I think for a novice user to have a systemized, structured approach, whether this or another, is extremely important to not have them analyzing every single piece of the cardiac ultrasound in that moment because we don't care if there's a tiny ditzel attached to the valve in that moment. We don't care about focal wall motion abnormalities necessarily in that moment until we get ROSC. It's really interesting that uh, the ACLS protocols are updated continuously, but I think they make a major statement or revision of their protocols every five years. So ACLS was last, it's due for another upgrade in uh, 2020. And hopefully they will be able to kind of move away from kind of move more towards sono-guided ACLS would be my hope or that they'll be able to incorporate some of these papers like the Reason Network, like um, the Highland Group's CASA protocol into their next iteration of, um, of ACLS guidelines. So like the results of this paper are pretty interesting um, in that they were able to increase or almost double the number of patients whose pulse check was not delayed by POCUS greater than 10 seconds. However, their mean average um, brought their POCUS time from 20 seconds to about 15 or 16 seconds. So you're still over the 10 second pulse check pause um, a lot of their time. The, the thing about this protocol is that everything that we've seen to date uses the pulse check. And admittedly, that's the easiest time to look for something. But if you can't find a view, then you're still probably going to be over that 10 seconds, right? The one thing they did mention was that people who found the heart before the pulse check occurred, and this is something I really, really hit home. This is, this is the biggest take-home point from this paper for me, is that if you look and find your view before the pulse check pause happens, you don't have any delay um, in your pulse check pause. So at our shop, we actually have a protocol in place, which has not been published, but where we make them have the view before we'll stop the pulse check. So part of our protocol prior to a pulse check is making sure the sonographer, who in our case is never the least experienced person in the room, um, because this is not the time or place for that. And we say you 
we're going to do a pulse check in 10 seconds. Ultrasound, are you ready? And they have to have a view of the heart prior to us stopping compressions. And as soon as we hear the beep on the machine, we're back on the chest. There's no, we do a three second clip record and there's no staying on. It's you, I physically will push somebody back onto the chest to do compressions to minimize that delay and anecdotally see a much shorter time off the chest being prepared ahead of time. What are the kind of key pieces of advice that you would say to people? How do you use POCUS in a cardiac arrest? I think we all agree that you need to be in place beforehand. You need to choose a pro position that you're happy with and you're able to modify. I think it's a good idea that you're counted in to the next pulse, uh, pulse or rhythm check and then that somebody externally counts out those 10 seconds, even though we know that they're probably overestimated. You probably end up being there for longer than 10 seconds, even if somebody is counting out. So this CASA exam we're reasonably on board with. It's going to a three-step process. During the first three pulse checks, we're going to look at fluid around the heart. We're going to look at the right heart. And we're going to look for cardiac activity. It's not particularly objectionable. There's various nuances we could talk about. I want to hand it over to maybe some of the other folk. What bits of cardiac arrest ultrasound do you find particularly high yield or useful? Or what would you go to? If you have you have ultrasound, you have cardiac arrest, you're only allowed one view or one finding or one thing to look for. Is there anything you find particularly useful? Any other tips and tricks people would like to add for cardiac arrest ultrasound? I just would say in my experience... Um Ultrasound is most helpful for terminating the arrest uh, because when I see asystole, um, I know it's time. They're not asystole, cardiac standstill, excuse me. Um, it so is dying. I think I might be a bit controversial here. So we know that there is zero evidence to support any form of mortality benefit to using ultrasound in cardiac arrest as it currently stands, high quality evidence. That being the case, we need to be extraordinarily careful that we aren't harming patients by extending the hands-off time on the chest. I personally am a big fan of recording the clip. I have a problem with the protocol that they've introduced here in CASA, which is that they've asked a question, then they've done an entire round of CPR, then they've asked another question, then they've done an entire round of CPR, so that by the time you get to your third round of CPR in this study, you're only answering one of these questions. That doesn't make sense to me. What makes sense to me is recording a single clip and then interrogating it in a protocolized fashion three times over in the space of perhaps 26 to 30 seconds for a different pathology each time, not waiting an entire cycle in cardiac arrest for the next thing because all you've done there is you've increased and prolonged the time before you can correct a correctable pathology. Um, I understand where they've gone in terms of the prioritization of their protocol. I'm not quite sold on... Um, on assessing for motion. So there's still this debate over looking at fine VF, even though there's asystole on the monitor. What debate? It's there. Well, There's so, no debate. You see it or you don't see it. So, uh, but, but what are you going to do with it? Because irrelevant of whether you have fine VF on Shock ultrasound. <laughs> but you, you've discovered an, un, an unshockable rhythm. Now you have discovered a shockable. But the literature tells us that even if we can, it, it's irrelevant what we can see on ultrasound. If there's 20 minutes of asystole, they're not coming back. Bullshit. So you can see you can see asystole on the monitor. You see VFib on your on your ultrasound screen. You're not going to shock that. Of course, we're going to shock it, but it's not going to make a difference to the patient outcome. Yes, the, it Uts, is. the Utstein criteria. Which Guess have what? Been we all have clips where we have that exact same scenario, and we get ROS when we do double sequential defib, when we give them bicarb, when we do some non-standard um, ACLS stuff. And um, I know what is they their know, CPC score? What is their CPC? What is their what is their modified ranking? That's what matters. Go for it, go for it there. 
Hello. Uh, can I say something? I think it's a really interesting discussion. I'm, I want to introduce the term common sense-based medicine uh, instead of evidence-based medicine, because if there's not evidence for it, doesn't mean it's not right, it's not there. We may have not found the evidence. Uh, so, um, yeah, I completely concur with the uh, shocking VF, also uh, if it's fine VF. So that's a big chance, uh, I think, in the resuscitation, you see something shockable, uh, we shock it. And just as a second remark on your... Um, um, and then just one more addition, if you can't find the heart or you don't have the f time because people are on the chest, uh, yeah, I think it's also a good adjunct, which is pretty easy just to look for clots in the legs um, as an adjunct to um, yeah, maybe views you would not get. So that was my, uh, there are my comments on the, on the CASA protocol, but no, great no. initiative. Put your hand down, Eden, uh, put your hand down. We're out of time. Oh. No, no, we're not just Eden's out of time. Do you want to add anything, Rachel? Nope, Rachel and I were discussing LVOT. Rachel's going to talk about it. Oh, yeah. So the whole reason why I um, do compression monitoring is because um, this isn't really out there yet, but it, ma it makes a lot of sense, um, specifically if you subscribe to the cardiac pump theory of resuscitation, in that, um, you know, where we are placing our hands using the same sternal um, protocol that AHA guidelines tell us to do, um, we're not actually compressing the LV to encourage forward flow of circulation. What we're actually doing is, uh, in a lot of cases, we're compressing the LVOT or the AOT or the atrii, and therefore effectively pushing blood back into the LV, and there's no way you're going to get forward flow of circulation that way. So we've discovered through a series of cases that when we take the Lucas off or when we adjust our hand position for CPR more to the left, um, even to the left nipple in some cases, we are seeing increased ROSC and increased end tidal um, and parameters of success. And once again, TOE is very useful for that, as discussed in our previous current future podcast, because it's not published yet. All right, well, that's a wrap for our IAEM podcast. Again, this audio, as well as part one, was featured on the RCAM podcast as well. That's rcemlearning.co.uk. Go and check it out. A lot of other critical care and emergency medicine topics covered there. Thanks again for joining us. If you like this type of thing, if you like these collaborative and conversational podcasts, give us a comment. Let me know. Shoot me an email. Talk to me on Twitter. You can always go to our website, ultrasoundgel.org, to get a hold of us, or you can visit our Facebook page, or you can talk to us on Twitter. Until then, we'll talk to you later. More. 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 Gel. More. Ultrasound gel, 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 gel